Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Today is Thursday, April 30th, 2009, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This is another one of our podcasts devoted to the current H1N1 influenza epidemic, and our guest today is Dr. John H. Beigel. He is currently Director of Clinical Research at Macrogenics, Inc., and he is a volunteer consultant at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institute of Health, and his board certifications include internal medicine, critical care, and infectious disease. Importantly for today, Dr. Beigel was the author on an article published in Critical Care Medicine in 2008. This was a concise, definitive review entitled, aptly enough, Influenza. Uh, The reference is Critical Care Medicine 2008, volume 36, pages 2660 to 2666, and this is currently posted on the SCCM website under Disaster Management Resources. Thank you so much, Dr. Beigel, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I was really quite excited about the opportunity to speak with you because, uh, as I was saying to you before, there is, um, I guess, not unexpectedly a bit of information overload at this point, and uh, I found your article to be extremely helpful, at least to point out, and you know, very recently published, what is considered to be the knowledge base around this virus. And I thought I'd begin, actually, by reading your last paragraph of this, and then we'll go into some educational points for the listeners. You wrote, intensivists also have an obligation to participate in hospital, regional, and national programs to coordinate and develop services for a pandemic, which will eventually occur. The media and some healthcare organizations seem to have developed flu fatigue, i.e. they are less engaged in pandemic preparation because no large outbreak has occurred a pandemic will occur. Intensivists and the global society must be prepared. And I thought I'd let you speak about that sort of as a background to the events over the last week or so. The I think the important part of uh, that de- uh, description is that the past few years have taught us that pandemics will occur. Uh, I wasn't being specific for influenza, I think the lessons of uh, SARS back in 2004 uh, taught uh, how globally uh, we can become affected uh, with a respiratory virus uh, before the diagnosis of the virus even exists. Uh, The uh, H5N1 uh, influenza outbreak over the last few years has taught us uh, that that threat can take many forms, whether it's SARS or avian influenza. Uh, and I think the current H1N1 uh, uh, outbreak just reaffirms that, that, that outbreaks do exist. We don't know whether this will be a pandemic uh, at this point, uh, but we do need to be globally uh, prepared for such. I thought I'd begin, and again, as I emphasized to you before, I thought that your article was particularly clear and particularly well-organized, and I'd like to sort of go through major parts of it because it clarifies some issues that are often confused in the lay press, and we don't really have room for confusion at this point. So you, you write that the influenza viruses are members of the ortho family of viruses. Influenza viruses can be classified as A, B, or C, 
and then you focus in on the uh, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. And before I let you speak about that in general, one of the questions I was wondering if you could answer that I'm still confused about is uh, there are multiple H1N1 viruses, and when they say because there's even argument about whether or not it, I haven't used the term swine flu in any of these podcasts, and I'm trying not to. Um, but it isn't an H1, a human H1N1 virus. So maybe if you could start out there, even just describing how you would like us to call it. The the important part of this is there are two proteins on the surface of the virus. So there's the hemagglutinin and the nerminidase, and uh, those are important because those are the main antigens to which antibodies uh, are developed uh, after an infection. Based on those antigens or those antibodies, uh, we, can, we can class uh, influenza viruses. Uh, so they are classed uh, into 16 different hemagglutinins and nine nerminidases, and currently what was uh, circulating in humans are an H1N1 virus and an H3 into uh, virus. Uh, the H1 in, uh, has multiple serotypes uh, to it. So, for example, in the 2008 9 uh, influenza season, uh, the H1 was uh, what's called A Brisbane. But if you look back a year earlier in 2008, there was uh, uh, the H1 uh, serotype was primarily about two thirds uh, Solomon Islands and about one third. Uh, were Brisbane. It is the continued evolution of these viruses that require seasonal uh, vaccine updates. In addition to the human strains, there are multiple other H1 strains uh, in uh, birds and in other mammals. The current H1N1 outbreak uh, has the hemagglutinin derived from a swine uh, virus. Uh, it is a, similar, a strain similar to uh, that found in pigs in North America. I think it is somewhat misleading to call it a swine uh, flu because the entire virus is not a swine virus. The, uh, the, uh, H, uh, the hemagglutinin is a swine from North America. The neuraminidase is uh, similar to a swine component uh, from Europe. Uh, but the other uh, genes uh, are seem to be a mix of human, uh, swine, and maybe some avian uh, influenza. So it is not a pure swine virus, and, and, and I think that is driving the need to call this H1N1 and not swine flu. It, but is this called a human H1N1? or It seems like it's not, right? It, it, it's not because it's not a strain that has ever been seen in, in humans. Uh, so it is it is a swine derived hemagglutinin swine derived nerminidase um and and we have not seen either of these antigens uh, before and i was reading that that because the the reason it's being so easily transmitted is because a lot of the genetics are actually human is that right or not it it is speculated that that is one of the reasons that it is easily transmitted certainly the uh, gene, uh, the genes responsible for viral replication uh, are critical for transmission, uh, and many of those have human-like elements to it. So it is it is postulated that uh, that is one of the reasons that this is so easily transmitted. And the reason that we don't have immunity against it is that because of the non-human components of the genome at this point. It, the the reason that we don't have immunity against it is we don't 
we, uh, we have not seen uh, the hemagglutinin or nermidase uh, in previous human strains. So, so those, those are the two main antigens that we have antibodies towards. Uh, and we have not seen the strain uh, before. The, ro- the role of development of a vaccine, which I know people are talking about, from your perspective teaching us in this iner- early phase of this epidemic, is, is that going to play any role at all? It's an interesting question. The, the, uh, there, there are several different scenarios that you can, that you can think about for how this uh, will evolve. Uh, one will be uh, similar to the SARS where there was, uh, there was a central location where many of the infections started. They were, uh, they were uh, transported back to their home countries. Uh, they had some local transmission, uh, but eventually the, the human-to-human transmission died out. Uh, so you can come up with a scenario for this that, that replicates what we saw in SARS. Uh, the uh, worst-case scenario uh, would be uh, that Either this continues its its outbreak uh, and continues to gain human to human transmission potential, or similar to what happened in 1918, there was a number of cases uh, in the in the spring. There was a law in the summer, uh, and then in the fall is the where the when the majority of uh, cases in the 1918 uh, epidemic occurred. So if, in, in that scenario where we see cases now, there's a law in human-to-human transmission, but this comes back with a vengeance in the fall, that will be the case uh, where uh, the vaccine will be, uh, will be needed. And one of the, just to follow up on that, what you were discussing, the creation of the annual vaccine, it, that, is that based primarily on the viruses that have been going around the previous year and whatever changes they think might occur? Or do you want to comment on that for just a minute? The, the, the vaccine is, is based on um, both what, what went around the previous year and, was, and what is uh, circulating in the opposite hemisphere. Uh, so in, uh, in our spring is the beginning of the flu season for the southern hemisphere. Uh, so, there, so the CDC and the WHO can look at the viruses that occurred in North America in 2008-9. They can look at, at what is uh, circulating in the, in the southern hemisphere and from that predict uh, or try to predict what uh, uh, strains should be targeted uh, with the, with the uh, influenza vaccine. But the, the reason that this is what's happening now is different is because the changes that occur year to year are more minor uh, recombinations? Exactly. Is that right? Exactly. More minor recombinations for which we actually have some partial immunity. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and this is a completely new antigen that we've never seen before. Okay. And something like this obviously doesn't happen frequently, and that's why it's a problem, right? Uh, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Thank you. That was actually very helpful. Uh, I thought we'd next just move on to the next part of your article where you spoke about yet another article uh, issue that's coming up, which is this issue of epidemiology, droplets, and transmission. And I was just trying to read this morning, even on the uh, CDC website, you know, which particular masks and why. And uh, if you could take a few moments and talk about that, that would be great. I think the most important thing is the epidemiology is not fully worked out for this uh, disease. The young boy that was thought to be the index case uh, in Mexico lived uh, near a pig farm, uh, but the pigs were not actively ill, uh, so it's unclear how he acquired uh, the infection. Uh, 
Uh, many of the suspected cases worldwide uh, have uh, traveled to Mexico, um, but many ha did not have any uh, swine exposure. Uh, there has been human-to-human -human transmission uh, occurring in several different uh, countries, um, and that is what has, has raised the, the alarms uh, at the WHO is the evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Now, the, the evidence of uh, how it is spread is even less clear. Uh, currently, uh, it is likely spread through uh, large droplet transmission. From seasonal flu, we know that transmission is primarily large droplets. Uh, the, the important part is that these are not clean bins, uh, that it is either droplet and, and that excludes other modes of transmission, but, but there's probably uh, carryover into, uh, into these other modes. So in seasonal flu, contact and small droplet airborne uh, have been, contact and small droplet transmission uh, have been uh, described. So uh, just to jump in on that, because uh, it, as a non-infectious disease specialist, but as an intensivist, I always tried to keep it clear. So if something like uh, tuberculosis is airborne. The little particles on their own go around, and that's when you need these special rooms and the N95 respirators. My understanding, and in reading your article, is it, it sounds like that the basic understanding is, like you said, droplet and contact, and that you don't need a special respirator mask, but nevertheless, they're recommending it for patients who, I guess, are, are critically ill, or, or do you have any thoughts on that yet? Well, the the... I think the recommendations are going to be fairly similar to what was seen with SARS. So SARS was primarily large droplet uh, transmission, but there were uh, descriptions of um, bronchoscopies, of intubations, procedures that would generate a fair amount of droplets that were transmitted more in an airborne pattern than a large droplet. Pattern. So if you're in a high-risk procedure or a procedure that can aerosolize the pathogen, is that right? Exactly. Then if, if you're in those high-risk procedures, then it is probably prudent uh, to uh, to have the airborne precautions and rather than just the, the large droplet precautions. The next issue you brought up, that, that and, and your description was helpful because the way you, in terms of the clinical features, you described the virus getting into the epithelium of the mucous membranes. You could almost picture it in your throat there, causing the sore throat and the nonproductive cough, the fevers and myalgias. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about, and I was on you know some uh, local CDC phone call, uh, are they... Do they want to try and test every single human being at this point who may be in a zone of concern that has fever, uh, myalgias, and sore throat? Uh, or or are the, is that going to overwhelm the testing facilities, or do they desperately need the data to know how fast it's spreading? Uh, maybe if you could talk about that. Well, I, I think currently the, the, there, there's a positive information, so it is not known how uh, rapidly it is spreading. Uh, the the problem is many places are not set up to do this uh, the the diagnostic uh, testing, uh, and concurrent with this outbreak, we will still have uh, cases of adenovirus infections, of uh, coronavirus, of of seasonal flu. Uh, so uh, there there is a need to test as many people as possible, um, but recognize that in low-risk areas, uh, as currently uh, Maryland is, is a low-risk area, uh, that the majority of respiratory illnesses are likely not to be swine flu or likely to be 
adeno, corona, seasonal flu, et cetera. Um, uh, so it sounds like I live in New York City. There, there's more of a concern to see how quickly it's spreading there, I guess. But on the other hand, in places that don't have it now, they are looking for these new index cases, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, one other area that I was looking forward to talk to you about, there's so many here, anyway. <laughs> one was the testing. And let me just ask a couple basic questions first, and then I'll let you sort of make your global discussion. Um, you have it nicely divided up on the table one of your paper where you talk about rapid antigen, immunofluorescence, nucleic acid testing, which is, is PCR, I guess, culture, and then antibody testing. And so when they talked about picking up or you send a nasal or a pharyngeal swab, I would imagine that's a rapid antigen, which I guess is an ELISA. Is that right? Uh, the, that, that is correct. The rapid antigen uh, is an ELISA. Uh, the, the, the current recommendations for testing for swine flu are PCR and culture. Uh, the, there, are, there are a few important points to this. Number one, as far as antibody testing, uh, and, and I think I made this point in, in the paper, antibody testing is useful for retrospective diagnosis to see who was infected, uh, but you need a, an acute and convalescent uh, a serum, so at least 14 days. If you tested me, you would need a blood test to see if I was developing antibodies against the actual virus, right? That, that is correct. It, it, it's what's called a hemagglutinin uh, inhibition assay. Uh, it basically looks, the, 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 the hemagglutinin on the virus has the ability uh, to agglutinate uh, the red red blood cells, uh, and it's basically looking at G the antibody titers uh, required to prevent that uh, uh, agglutination. Uh, it is looking at your antibodies to that specific virus. And one question I had before you go into it, and, and you did bring up in your paper, you sounded pretty positive about PCR, but when they say it was non-typable or that's how they figured it out, can you go for a few minutes and talk about how they would initially screen, and I guess with the ELISA, and then go to PCR, and I guess the PCR would be done at the CDC, so maybe if you could talk about that. Well, the, the, the CDC has developed uh, PCR uh, sequences, uh, and the, uh, currently those are available uh, at the CDC, but uh, as soon as the sequences are released, uh, many labs will be able to set this assay up. As far as the diagnosis of influenza by PCR, uh, they can be, they, there are PCR primers uh, for influenza A, so any serotype within uh, influenza A, H1 through 16, uh, or uh, specifically for H1. Now, the specific primer for H1 is for the Brisbane. Uh, the currently circulating seasonal strain. Uh, so when they say non-typable influenza A, uh, it means the PCR comes back as for influenza A positive, uh, but H1, H3, and depending on the lab, sometimes they'll test for H5. So H1, 3, and 5 are all negative, uh, but influenza A primer uh, was positive. That is influenza A, correct? That is correct. All right. And it's H1N1, therefore, that would be, why would that be non-typable, or is that non-typable? It, 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 it's the current PCRs you, you have, you can do an influenza A, which looks at a very conserved uh, sequence for all influenza A viruses. You can look for an H1 uh, uh, primer. Um, that H1 primer is specific for Brisbane, so it's not, it doesn't cover all H1s. Oh, okay. It's specific for so that's why this was non-typable, because it was a new H1, is that right? Exactly. Okay. 
So the so the, would the rapid antigen have been is positive though the the ELISA for the the uh, for the uh, influenza that would be positive in this case, right? The the rapid antigen has been described in many cases as, as being positive. There have been a few cases where it's described as negative. I don't think we know the sensitivity or specificity of the rapid antigen for this outbreak. Uh, so for that reason, the, the recommendations are to use the, the uh, very specific test, which would be the culture and the PCR only. And um, you were saying the culture takes some time though, right? The culture, the culture takes a few days. Uh, the, the antibodies is what takes several weeks, uh, but the culture does take a few days. And the PCR, if done correctly, can be quick, right? A, a very, it, it's, it's most labs run it once a day, so it really depends on the sequence of the lab. Um, but but the, the test itself is a very fast uh, test, yes. And um, as far as you know, as of today, is that the PCR for this particular H1N1 strain is only being run at the CDC, but you think very soon will be done all over the country? Uh, the CDC is... Uh, the CDC currently is running that assay. The CDC has uh, developed primers for that assay, and, and whenever those primers are released to the various state labs, uh, it uh, can be run uh, anywhere. Similar to uh, H5, many state labs uh, got the primers. Many hospital-specific labs uh, didn't uh, get the primers. So it just depends on the, on the individual uh, hospital. Well, and, and I mean, you run into issues where if you start over-screening patients that the validity of the test can get um, be of a problem. But it sounds like the PCR is so sensitive and specific that, that, that that's not going to be an issue, right? That is correct. Okay. Then I thought clinically, and this is relevant to critical care clinicians, is that you talk about complications of influenza. And I'm quoting your article, the most frequent complication of influenza is secondary bacterial pneumonia, um, specifically some, some gram negatives. And I thought that that's more than uh, worthy of, of further conversation. Uh, again, and, and maybe even more so for this topic, there's a complete paucity of, of data for the current uh, H1N1 outbreak. Certainly, seasonal influenza has a large component of secondary bacterial infections, and they can be uh, both gram-negatives as well as uh, staph. It is worth noting for seasonal, uh, and whether this holds true for the current H1, I, I do, don't know yet, uh, it, uh, that many patients will not present until the secondary bacterial pneumonia, so that they will actually have the flu. It will be fairly mild. They will stay home. Uh, and it is only when they get a secondary bacterial pneumonia that they will present uh, to the uh, emergency room. The, the other interesting thing is when they look back at 1918, that the majority of uh, mortality associated with 1918 has been attributed uh, to secondary bacterial pneumonias. They've done uh, uh, studies looking at old pathology uh, specimens, at clinical uh, uh, reports, uh, that that dictate how or, or that demonstrated how prevalent bacterial uh, pneumonias were then. Uh, obviously, there weren't antibiotics uh, at that point, and and for that reason, it is thought that those those secondary bacterial pneumonias caused the majority of mortality uh, back in 1918. I thought we'd uh, conclude. Uh, with giving you an opportunity to speak about another area that's been discussed a lot in the press, our therapy and antiviral therapy. And I just wanted to make a couple points first and then let you take it from there. Is, um, as you point out in your article, 
that there are there is a lack of an IV drug and no drug has been proved to be effective once a life-threatening disease occurs. So from a critical care perspective, that's not necessarily going to be a big part of our lives, but it's certainly a large a national, international um, patient safety issue. And maybe if you could take a few moments talking about what drugs are available and this issue of prophylaxis versus uh, therapy. So currently there are four uh, licensed influenza agents, uh, oseltamivir, zanamivir, amantadine, romantadine. Uh, the current H1N1 outbreak, uh, that strain is resistant uh, to amantadine and romantadine. It is currently sensitive to oseltamivir and zanamivir. There is increasing uh, resistance to those agents in seasonal influenza. So there is concern that if this swine virus combines with uh, seasonal uh, strains uh, that it could actually acquire uh, that oseltamivir, zanamivir, uh, or that oseltamivir resistance uh, and uh, would take out that class of drug. Uh, so currently the recommendations are for treatment are oseltamivir or zanamivir. Oseltamivir is available only as a, a capsule uh, to be swallowed. Uh, zanamivir is only available currently as an inhaled uh, powder. There, there is a need for intravenous agents for influenza. The oseltamivir levels achieved uh, with uh, oral administration are uh, fairly low. Uh, there is concern uh, in the critical care environment about gastroparesis and whether adequate absorption uh, would occur. There's one uh, documented, uh, well, there's one paper that documents that uh, even in the critical care environment for oseltamivir, uh, that oseltamivir was absorbed, so that is uh, reassuring. Um, but uh, a parenteral agent is, is uh, needed uh, for this uh, drug. Quick question, just, uh, and yeah. maybe this is silly, but uh, and just in terms of the dosing, so it's 75 milligrams twice a day for five days for treatment. The question I had about zanamivir, since it's inhaled, has anybody talked about it going in if somebody's on mechanical ventilation or something like that? There are several caveats to the zanamivir. The zanamivir does cause bronchospasm, so it is it is cautioned for people with asthma with with emphysema. You cannot administer it with mechanical ventilation. So in in those cases, the the only thing available would be uh, oral oseltamivir. And do you have an opinion about prophylaxis? I, I, I'm not quite sure what the official recommendations are. So, so prophylaxis for people at, at, at high risk uh, is uh, reasonable. The prophylactic uh, dose is, is half the therapeutic dose, so 75 milligrams uh, once a day. Uh, the, the, there's, there's little evidence right now for uh, widespread prophylaxis. Uh, there's no need for you and I to start uh, taking our prophylactic uh, oseltamivir. Um, uh, and the, the concept there, I, I'm just trying to think it through, maybe if you could talk about it just for even another minute, is um, if one takes it and I'm exposed and, I don't, and I'm not infected, it doesn't do anything, but if I am exposed, then it'll prevent me from becoming sick. But it seems to me that that's going to be a little confusing if this gets prolonged in terms of how long you would need to be on prophylaxis. 
Well, a, a, exactly right. If the, if this gets prolonged, what 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 oseltamivir will achieve is prevention of infection. But if this is an endemic strain, if this becomes a pandemic and becomes an endemic strain, uh, what what you're basically doing is prolonging the time until uh, until you get infected. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily make, uh, it doesn't prevent you from getting infected uh, completely. It just basically prolongs the time uh, until you get infected. And the, hopefully I'm developing immunity or the vaccine is being developed or something. Exactly. Hopefully the vaccine is being developed or, or other uh, therapeutics that might be better. Well, we're we're sort of at the end, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to make any kind of concluding points that you like to about this uh, this influenza issue. Well, the, uh, currently, I think the H1N1 uh, situation changes uh, on a daily basis. Uh, it is uh, imperative for not only intensivists, but really all healthcare practitioners to uh, keep up with this information. Uh, unfortunately, it is a challenge uh, combining this with all the other information uh, that, uh, that we need to keep up with. Um, but uh, there, there, there will be today... Uh, Many people presenting to the hospital, to the ICU, with respiratory failure, with diffuse viral pneumonias or, or diffuse atypical pneumonias. Uh, and, and it's only if you understand what the current uh, uh, outbreak situation is, what the current epidemiology is, uh, that you really understand how to uh, protect your staff and how to treat the patient appropriately. We've been speaking today with Dr. John H. Beigel. Dr. Beigel was formerly head of the Emergent Emerging Infectious Section of the Critical Care Medicine Department at the NIH. He is currently Director of Clinical Research at Macrogenics, Inc. in Rockville, Maryland. And he was the author on a concise, definitive review entitled Influenza in the September 2008 issue of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Beigel, for spending some time today. Thank you for inviting me. This concludes this edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please visit our website, for additional podcasts relating to the topic of the H1N1 influenza epidemic. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Infectious diseases are the second leading cause of death worldwide. Many new and re-emerging microbial threats, such as severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, SARS, avian influenza virus, and West Nile fever, continually challenge intensive care providers. Attend the 8th Summer Conference in Intensive Care Medicine to learn about ICU infection in an era of multi-resistance in Chicago, Illinois, USA, from June 4th to 6th, 2009, to become knowledgeable on the most effective infection control strategies available. Learn more by visiting www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org.
or info at sccm.org.